Do you like bass? Yes. Do you like melody? Yes. Do you like harmony? Yes. Then it's time for chorus versus chorus. Chorus versus chorus. It's time for chorus versus chorus. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Chorus versus Chorus. I'm Dane. I'm Ethan. And this is pretty insane. We have stepping for the first time ever into the Two Timers Club, Evan Salazar. Oh, I didn't realize that. that that's nice. I, I've, honestly, I was trying to force my way on sooner. but uh, you know. <laughs> Oh, you're like angry at us for not inviting you sooner. Okay, no, no, I get no, it. No, no, I no. give you this honorific. And then, <laughs> thank you. Thank yeah. you. I did realize that. that. That's cool. That's nice. I like that. And that's, I, I listened to, um, the recording episode the other day i liked it and i was like and i was like oh <clears> shit <throat> like like they've been doing this for it was this the 41st this episode? is gonna be the 41st episode yeah we've been that's, chugging away that's a lot yeah, almost two years i think now that's that's a lot so that's, good job I, us <laughs> i mean like you'll see I, I wonder how me compared with other guests because like i did i did my own research for my picks you know you saw already in the google docs page or whatever how i i put like for context here's the yeah. original of the song how but, seriously you're taking it <laughs> yeah yeah, exactly. so, <laughs> yeah well I, I thought this was gonna be good because last time we did the simpsons that was our theme and it was very fun to talk about the simpsons it maybe distracted a bit from the music talk and it was also kind of like hey cartoon man come on the show and talk about cartoons, Mr. Mm-hmm. Cartoony man. But, you know, Evan, Evan knows about the deep cuts. He has deep musical knowledge. And uh, we're going to ask him to flex that little, uh, you know, where, where is that muscle on your body? Is it your calf, your music knowledge muscles? Uh, I think it's in the foot to keep the beat, keep the rhythm. I was going to say it's somewhere. It's like behind the Achilles. It's in, yes. yes, exactly. Perfect. Our theme today is rarities, and we're going to be exploring within that theme three different subtopics, everything revolving around tracks that are sort of off the beaten path from what is front and center in pop music, basically. Our three categories are best B-side, which uh, we'll we'll get into how, how much fun I was having (laughs) with that assignment especially (laughs) ethan what's the second category our second category today is best demo and then the third category was best outtake it thoroughly confused all three of us what that actually meant so we changed that to best alternate mix of a well-known song yeah so Evan, the whole genesis of us asking you to come back on the show is because you came up with this idea. You said you should do a B-sides and demos episode. Can you tell us a bit about why you are interested in the art of the B-sides and the demos and kind of the things that are off the beaten path? I was always really into demos. I loved like on the deluxe version of an album mm-hmm. or whatever, the last couple of tracks would be like usually early versions of the songs or right. songs that were on like the B-side to the single or whatever. It was always these like weird. And a lot of those songs are not good, but some are like, <laughs> and, and there's like a reason that they are the B-sides and the reason yeah. that they mm-hmm. are the demos. But then there are certain versions of those songs that like hit on something different and usually more like real and raw mm-hmm. than yeah. The studio one and as someone who got into music as like a form of expression to me it was a much more immediate raw expression and so yeah. for whatever reason when you find like a good demo or whatever it, that's to me is like that's the song in my own world 
the mm-hmm. album version's the outtake for certain songs, of course. Like I said, most <laughs> of them are like not yeah. good. Now, that's why the special ones are so special. But and yeah, with B-sides, I got into country and like soul and doo-wop music and all this stuff later in life. A lot of people have uncovered a lot of things about those sorts of genres. And you know, people make compilations of just B-sides yeah. now. Like and, that's what like Numero Group does. And so I got into those. And, and there are bands that make a total art out of the single, right? Where their entire legend rests on some some of the B-sides, you know, some of the singles that they put out. The Smiths did it. I remember I had a, a like a burned CD that I had of all White Stripes B-sides, which was like yet another thing that Jack White was kind of bringing it back to old, well, kind I- of the old school, like actually like putting out singles that have songs that you can't get. And something else I was going to say, first of all, the way you were describing that, I remember the sensation of uh, when you, when DVDs were exciting and you would listen Mm -hmm. to the director's commentary on deluxe editions. That's also kind of what it felt like. It's like, you're getting a little peek into the process and there's something kind of like illuminating to see about how an artist goes through that process. Sometimes the melody is just really basic and isn't there yet. You get to kind Mm -hmm. of see that, that part. That's like super cool. Yeah, I, I also will say, I think not only are these alternative takes and rarities an interesting glimpse into the process that a lot of artists have, but they're so rare now. I, I can't think of an instance where, oh, aside yeah. from Taylor Swift, like <laughs> when would you even get your hands on a demo or like b-sides don't exist b-sides aren't a thing there is no singles anymore single that has you know a second track on it right it's Mm. it's all literally one song or an album so i think it's also an interesting exploration of a bit of a lost art yeah yeah lost art yeah I was thinking how like you saying that is so interesting because like albums exist today, but like it's more so a song on like YouTube. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like just like a release, like a single yeah. song. It's just a single. But like sometimes those singles are like singles for albums. It's a different economy now, yeah, right? There's yeah. there's no A side and B side because there's no need it, to radio play and like the discretion of the DJ doesn't matter. It's YouTube and streaming. It's, it's all just exists immediately. Right. But maybe in the future, maybe they'll discover, maybe if like, you know, like like Lil Peep or whatever, he saw his albums coming out, doesn't he? And like, he died a long time ago. It's just like all of this stuff, you know, just yeah. keeps like being found or whatever. Yeah, the archives. Yeah. Yeah. But we're, uh, we're, we're glimpsing into the future and we haven't even looked into the past yet. So mm-hmm. uh, should we... <laughs> <laughs> that's a transition uh do you do we want to get started should we uh yeah. take a look at our three categories of rarities best b-side best demo and best alternate mix uh ethan do you want to i would love to my choice for best b-side is Joni mitchell's a case of you i am so surprised that Joni mitchell has not come up more i know on our podcast she's a fucking legend. So for those of you who don't know this fucking legend, (laughs) Joni Mitchell uh, is also, man, still around despite being born in 1943, 78 right now. Canadian American, originally born in Fort McLeod, Alberta, Canada, was, is, has been one of the most, I would argue, like enigmatic folk musicians Mm -hmm. since the folk revival. She is an incredible poet, musician, singer, songwriter, and was really known for being 
a chameleon when it comes to creating folk music. She had albums that were very kind of quote straight ahead in the folk revival era. She also had music that was very poppy. She had music that was very progressive going into the 80s. She definitely used a lot of more at the time modern sounds and mixed it with her kind of folk revivalism. Also an era where the sort of wrecking crew rock session players began to be unable to play her compositions. So she had Mm -hmm. to hire jazz musicians like Jaco Pistorius and stuff like that. She just began to sort of grow way more complex than the pop landscape was able to accommodate, which I, I love that detail about her too. Yeah. And, you know, starting actually pretty early in her career, she would often be working with musicians and they'd say, okay, well, what are the chords? And she's like, well, I don't, that's not really important. I need you to listen to the song and figure out how to accompany this. Mm. So yeah, Joni is just really awesome. And this song, Case of You, is one of my favorites. It's off of her absolutely stellar fourth studio album called Blue, which is one of my favorite albums ever. And this song is really poetic. It's really beautiful. She is playing Also, another thing about Joni Mitchell was very famous for playing the dulcimer, which, again, kind of like esoteric, a little bit enigmatic of her to be playing this very kind of niche Appalachian instrument. Where's that at? If you want me, I'll be in the bar on the back of a cartoon It lays flat on your lap. The strings are all open. And so you actually play different chords by muting the strings in different ways. Oh, interesting. So yeah, it's a really cool instrument. Sounds really beautiful. It sounds sort of like a mandolin almost because there's a lot of a lot of the strings often are tuned to the same note. Um, so she would also often play in tunings that were like an open chord or were all the strings were t- tuned to the same note. I like that. I've always liked the sound of like open chords or an open string. I'll have to. Yeah. Another reason to like this song is James Taylor is playing guitar on it and is playing also in an open tuning on this track so multiple yeah i can't learn any joni mitchell songs on ultimate guitar (laughs) because her tunings are so weird i can never yeah i would never Uh, even attempt to learn like it yeah i I hear that kind of music and i'm just like i can't i can't can't, can't pull it off I would still be on my feet. I think that just kind of added to her mystery. You had a lot of people who were trying to parrot Bob Dylan in the, in the sense of really simple four chord open chords on the acoustic guitar. And she really threw people for a loop. And as Dane was mentioning, kind of veered into jazz very quickly after that. But this song, despite it being absolutely beautiful, or maybe because it's beautiful and a little bit slower, was a B-side. And the A side track was California, not Californication, just <laughs> California, which very little known fact she did secretly write for the Chili Peppers. <laughs> yeah, which also California, also off the album Blue, a gorgeous song, yeah. much poppier, but a completely different side of her. I've always loved this album and I think these songs go really well together. So if you're looking for kind of an introduction into Joni Mitchell, maybe start with this B-side because it's oh, yeah. gorgeous. I was I was playing the song the, uh, the other day and Nora was like, the song is so flattering for whoever she wrote it for. <laughs> you know? Apparently it's about her breakup with Graham Nash. Oh. 
Why don't you talk about yours? I will. As these guys know, for this assignment, I found this website called <laughs> The Joy of 45 Collecting, which is such a, like an, a web 1.0, like GeoCities kind of website mm-hmm. name. Mm-hmm. And also looks like that. And the page is 600 Essential B-Sides. So what I did, um, I looked on Spotify, no one had compiled this list. So I've actually been very slowly adding all the songs onto a Spotify playlist and I'm making my way through them. And boy, there are some treasures on it. (laughs) When you were showing me this list, I was like, this is super long. And you're like, yeah, I'm only like in the fifties or whatever. I was like, (laughs) oh my God. Like I've been listening for 10 hours already. (laughs) No, but it's cool. And it's, it's it's great. There are treasures on it. And then there are also, if you just look at this list, there are so many moments that you have where you're like, that was a B-side? What the fuck? Mm -hmm. Some of those songs, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry by Hank Williams was a B-side. Not Fade Away. You Can't Always Get What You Want. Fortunate Son. I Feel the Earth Move. Carol King. A lot of good Sam Cooke B-sides. Bring It On Home to Me. And most amazingly, possibly his you know most signature song, uh, A Change Is Gonna Come, was a B-side, which is unbelievable. We Will Rock You by Queen was a B-side. And The Smith's most famous song, How Soon Is Now. However... Towering above all of these songs is the B-side Hound Dog by Elvis Presley, which was a B-side to the A-side Don't Be Cruel. That to me is just utterly mind-blowing. The reason I chose this one, and you know, I I think I could have, I mean, there were a lot of things I was considering. There are some like hipper things I could have chosen or some deeper cuts. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, okay, we need to talk about this. Hound Dog is not just one of Elvis's most famous songs. It's the signature Elvis song. Do you two, is there anything that even competes? No, because like if I think about him like shaking his hips or whatever, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's always like, yeah. you know, it's always the that <laughs> song. It's not just signature to Elvis, it's signature to the rock and roll era. Mm-hmm. It signifies the 50s. Right. And like maybe Rock Around the Clock is as signature, but like you don't know what Bill Haley looks like. When you hear Hound Dog, you think of what Elvis looked like, how he moved, how people screamed, and like the culture shift that is all automatically evoked by Hound Dog. And it mm-hmm. was a B side to a song that I don't think either of us can even call to mind when I say don't be cruel. Right. <laughs> There's a lot I did not know. Uh, it seems like a song that would have a long history. It has a long now. history. I didn't realize that other artists had performed it before Elvis. If you look at the Wikipedia for Hound Dog, it's very long. It's like it's like a hundred page book. So there's a lot of stuff to learn about it. But very basically, th- this song is the product of the Brill Building. And I keep threatening to, we're going to make an episode about the Brill Building someday. We, you know, we gotta. And also, Ethan, I feel like I keep bringing up the Brill Building, but like, do I need to explain what it is? I feel like I keep referencing it. I mean, for me, at the very least, maybe our <laughs> listeners know. If I had to guess, the Brill Building was a recording studio. No, oh. the Brill Building was a building on Broadway mm-hmm. in the fifties and sixties, where just like how Madison Avenue, like this is what I'm saying, like they need to make a prestige drama that's like Mad Men, but for the Brill Building. The Brill Building was to pop songwriting what Madison Avenue was to advertising. During this era, all of the most 
legendary songwriters working in this building, pumping out the most iconic songs of that era. People who composed and wrote lyrics in this environment where they were kind of sitting and just churning out song after song for this market. Burt Bacharach and Hal David, Neil Diamond, Neil Sadaka, Carol King and her at the time husband and songwriting partner, Jerry Goffin, Laura Nero. Paul Simon also wrote a bunch of songs for other artists under a pseudonym, uh, under a, a bunch of different names. And then of course, the wall of sound began in the Brill building. So Phil Spector was a songwriter for a lot of girl groups and for that Brill building sound. But uh, the people I'm going to talk about today are Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who are two, two Jewish guys. Uh, a lot of the people were, were Jewish, just from like the Midwest and came to New York to make it big. They wrote a lot of songs for Elvis. They wrote Jailhouse Rock. They wrote Kansas City. They wrote Yakety Yak. Don't talk back. Oh, um, that's, that, that's sick. Good. Yeah. Fun. They Good wrote uh, Spanish Harlem with Phil Spector, which is uh, mm. one of my favorite songs. It's an amazing song. They also wrote Stand By Me by Benny King. So team with a pretty good pedigree here. They met uh, in 1952, a blues singer named Big Mama Thornton. And she was a comedian and burlesque performer and kind of on the Chitlin circuit and had this kind of larger than life personality and was kind of coarse and had that sort of humor to like get people in nightclubs kind of riled up. Lieber and Stoller wanted to write for her a quote, a tune to suit her personality, brusque and badass. They wrote this song for her and it's way more like smoky nightclub. It's still pretty rowdy, but her original lyrics are actually much more kind of body. wag your tail but i ain't gonna feed you no more a little little kinkier <laughs> and really what it is is it's southern black slang quote referring to a man who sought a woman to take care of him and the song is actually the tale of a woman throwing a gigolo out of her house in her life so that she doesn't have to care for him which is very interesting because elvis sort of strips that more sordid angle away from it well, yeah, just hearing you say that, like the title makes so much more sense. I'm like, who is Elvis calling a hound dog? Yeah. And you like what... saying you ain't nothing but a hound dog. Like, so yeah. it's just like, yeah, like who is it makes a lot more. sense. It makes more sense. And there's the line like you don't catch any rabbits, which makes total sense. It's like you don't go out and like provide for yourself and you're mm -hmm. asking me to provide for you. And then also they said you were high class and that's just a lie, which I think is a great diss. <laughs> yeah. Again, like you're not a high class man. So that song stayed on the top of the R&B charts for seven weeks. Really impressive. But unfortunately, it got memory hold by our culture because of Elvis. One more kind of stop on the way to that is that before Elvis covered it, a group called Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys, they were playing in Las Vegas. And in 1956, Elvis was in Las Vegas at the Sands Casino for a residency from April 23rd to May 6th. The casino management shortened his residency because he got all the teenagers too riled up and they were acting indecently. So they cut his <laughs> residency to a week. And so while he was there and hanging out and seeing, you know, the other performers there, it's not the Big Mama Thornton version that he learned about Hound Dog. He learned about it through this group's cover. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, a hound dog. Why 
kind of like a, a photocopy of a photocopy he was doing a cover of a cover and so like through this game of telephone is how he got the big bang of rock and roll what's also interesting is that he learned about the hip gyrations from that group the bellboys because that was las vegas burlesque a cultural thing specific to las vegas and so because of this song and because of this performance he saw at this at his first residency and sort of the culture of Las Vegas, he got that signature Elvis thing. So then they released the song, it's a B-side. And then what happens is he performs on June 5th, 1956 on the Milton Berle show. And this is like the Forrest Gump thing right the famous thing he shakes his hips on tv people go insane the fcc finds them and then on the steve allen show like they were telling steve allen to ban him because he was supposed to go on the steve allen show next and steve allen was like i'll control elvis right like i'll keep him from corrupting the youth i mean this is like so mythological there's nothing to say about it right what happened is then the song exploded became way more popular than don't be cruel and they re-released the single with hound dog as the a-side so that's a very, you know, short version of Hound Dog as the big bang for Elvis's career and for this culture shift in 1950s America. Some songs just don't lose their luster. You can feel the excitement that people felt at the time. And I feel that way about Hound Dog. It's just a shot of pure youth into your ear. Yeah. Well, they said you was high So for mine, there's really not a lot. I don't know a lot about mine. So how yeah. did you how did you find this song? All credit to the song goes to the podcast Drifters Sympathy by Emil Amos. I would highly recommend it to anybody who listens to this show. It's another music show about like his youth in North Carolina, like Chapel Hill area and him like, you know, he gets to know like this kind of like guru type to him and he gets, you know, gets into psychedelics and he's like 16 and there's like, you know, indie rock of the era is infused into it and so that's his whole perspective and he tells that story so it's all like very like deep deep cuts so all credit goes to that show and i recommend that show to everybody who even has like a passing interest in music mm -hmm. it totally helped expand my music taste from where it was so this song is by A.M. Gately, otherwise known as Michael Gately. I have two of his LPs. This song does not appear on this LP. The A-side to this song, which is called Battle in the City, doesn't appear on an LP either. This is his only release where he goes by A.M. Gately. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So it's even rarer. Yeah, it's just like a weird, you'll notice like the YouTube video for it has like 172 views, which is for YouTube, extremely low. <laughs> um, yeah, so I have two of his LPs that I got at Harvest Records in Asheville, North Carolina. They're called Gately's Cafe and Still Round. And there are some really good songs on those records. But, you know, overall, the records themselves aren't great. But, uh, but there are some really good songs on there, in my opinion. But before that was this seven inch that came out in 1969. Neither side were hits. So, yeah. And to me, I just loved it immediately. And the first thing I heard when I heard this song was Elliot Smith. I'm like, Elliot Smith has heard this song. There's just like things in my life. There's mm -hmm. like art I'll come across 
movies, books, whatever. I always think like so-and-so saw this movie. Like when I yeah. saw- Somehow, uh, some way they, yeah. they found it, yeah. There's no way they both have a similar voice, similar sense of melody. It just sounds so hauntingly to me, like something he must have heard, which yeah. you know, I haven't really done any hard research to see if Elliot Smith has ever heard this obscure B-side to the song, but <laughs> he's probably heard Michael Gately or something. It's interesting, Evan, you say that it reminded you of Elliot Smith. Like when I heard it, there is a certain chord change in there mm. that also reminded me of Elliot Smith. I think it was like, I know yeah, the exact I, chord you're talking about. I know the exact chord because yeah, that's the chord I, for me too. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, what's called a Picardy third. So it's basically mm. where you expect a minor chord and a minor third within that chord. And it's changed into a major third. <laughs> Elliot Smith loves doing that. So I'll just lie here by your side, satisfied with how I am living. Oh, I'm just happy to be happy to know. So that was B-sides. That I mean, we could have done a whole episode about B-sides. It's just scratching the surface. There's a whole, I, I think Evan was the only one who chose something that's like a non-album track as well, which th there's a whole world to that as well. But um, who are we giving it to? I kind of feel like in the spirit of making amends to Joni Mitchell for not talking about her yet on the show, I would, I would throw my weight behind Joni. What do you guys think? Dude, I love Joni. That works for me. And Ethan wins a point for once. Congrats. <laughs> Huzzah. Because she oh. does seem to be, like I said, like what I know about, I mean, I know like, you know, isn't that paved over paradise, put up a parking lot? Mm -hmm. Isn't that? Mm -hmm. yeah. Which, yeah. She's got more than that, buddy. Well, no, it will exactly. That's the thing. But even like that, I'm like, oh, if she hasn't been mentioned once on this show, yeah. it's been like 40 episodes. I'm like, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, give her some. No, this, this obscure seven inch from 1969 that has like 100 views must win. No, I don't. Hey, care. I mean, that that was a very good crate digging delight. So thank you for, for putting it on our uh All credits. I'm just spreading the gospel of that song. I think that's don't amazing. don't tell people about other music podcasts on our oh, show. Get mind, out of never here. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> um, I found that song on my own. Yes. Uh, on chorus versus chorus right now. It's recursive. <laughs> so our next category is best demo. And Evan, speaking of Elliot Smith, tell us about your choice for best demo. Uh, so my choice is Elliot Smith and it's Miss Misery. I think it's early version is the mm. official definition that uh, the album New Moon, it's off of Elliot Smith beside rarity collection kind of like a posthumous odds and sods collection yeah. yeah called new moon and this version is just i mean it's like i was kind of saying when i was talking about why i like demos first of all it's just more raw you know what i mean and more passionate it's in the vein of like his earlier albums they're all acoustic it's like the self-titled and mm -hmm. he's like acoustic stuff and so i've always liked that stuff more than the full-on instrumentation stuff which is really what, wow uh, i mean not like yeah yeah honestly yeah like when, when i think of songs like <laughs> like say yes or whatever or think of like what is it between the bars and like mm -hmm. you know or i think of like needle in the hay or i think of uh the biggest lie the last mm -hmm. song off of self-titled those are like the late smith songs that that and the songs off of his very last album uh from a basement on the hill i love that album in between figure eight and 
what's the uh, other xo um, but- i think is when he started doing more like studio full band stuff. okay then it's yeah. either or is acoustic one but then those ones the songwriting is really good but there's that whole sort of trying to be the beatles thing that isn't mm-hmm. so much there in the early ones i think it makes it more original in my opinion and that's why i like this version of miss misery is because well i was thinking too dane because dane showed me this book about celine dion called yeah. journey to the end of taste by mm-hmm. carl wilson that i'm sure you've great, talked about great all- book amazing have you, book have you guys yeah. talked about it on the show i'm sure I'm we sure. have yeah. so so yeah well dane good job because I, I recommend that book to people too because it's just a great little piece of pop philosophy culture yeah. writing it's and, amazing yeah yeah and so like the beginning of the book frames celine dion against elliot smith mm-hmm. uh because the year that my heart will go on from titanic was nominated was the same year that miss misery from goodwill hunting was nominated down the drain to put bad thoughts in my head I guess like Elliot Smith didn't even really want to do it he claims like his friends he's like he's like it made my friends happy and that's why I did it and he also wears like the suit, the white suit that he wears in the video, which is like his own personal white suit. But so anyway, in, in the book, it's kind of framed like she's excess and grandeur and, you know, kitsch kind of tacky. And Elliot Smith is like pure. You know like David, I mean? David versus Goliath kind of. Yeah. 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 And so with that like dichotomy in mind, it's fun to look at this version of the song as sort of like the album version is a Celine Dion to the Elliot Smith of the early version, so to speak. It's just more stripped down. The lyrics are different. The lyrics are a lot more direct. He says, I can't hold my liquor, but I keep a good attitude because it's all right. Some enchanted night, I'll be with you. And it's this like listful Mm. thing. But this other one, I don't have you with me, but I keep a good attitude. You miss me, miss me, miss misery like you say you do. It's just not as good as a lyric as the demo one. The demo one's a lot more just raw. It's not his most popular song by any stretch. It's his most. They gave him exposure, right? Because of the Oscars. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the thing is that maybe it could have been if like a more truthful version. Frames on the wall. It's a comedy for myself. I love his really lush, poppy stuff. And mm-hmm. I remember you. Evan, you and I were talking a little while ago about just like every single album he grew, every single album he did something mm-hmm. different and it got better and he was getting better. And that's yet another, you know, reason why his suicide is so tragic because he was so clearly growing at an exponential rate in terms of how he learned to use the studio as an instrument and like play all the, like do these little kind of like pocket symphony type things. And Maybe the like acoustic stuff, the simpler stuff is like more elemental and more signature Elliot Smith. And he was like figuring out how to wield higher production more and probably would have gotten better at it. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I like all of this stuff, but yeah. my heart is more with like the acoustic stuff. For sure. like, and there's something to be said. I've always thought this about him. There's something to be said about writing really memorable songs that are just acoustic guitar, like writing classics on acoustic right. guitar, you know? You know, I mean, there's nothing, there's no distortion to hide behind. You know, there's right. nothing to hide behind. It's all about, yeah. is the song good or not? Right. My choice for best demo, and 
I had a lot of options, but I chose this song in particular because I think its evolution is really interesting. And I just like talking about the, the topic of the song as well. Also, amazingly, a band, completely canonical, foundational band that we haven't talked about on the show yet. Also, Elliot Smith, we haven't talked about. We haven't talked about Joni yet. We haven't talked about Elliot Smith. And we haven't talked about the Pixies. Wow. You, know who, you know who the Pixies are. They're one of those types of bands where when someone, they, they think that it's cool to say that they're their favorite band because they think that they're the only one whose favorite <laughs> band is the Pixies, you know? I don't need to explain it, right? They're one of the foundational if not the foundational band of alternative rock. Like they laid the foundations for everything that happened in the late 80s and 90s to create this entirely new branch of the music industry for alternative rock by mixing all of the weirdest influences of indie rock and metal and punk and bossa nova and all this kind of weird stuff. The song I chose is Debaser which is the first song off of their 1989 album, Doolittle. This was their major label debut after their first album, Surfer Rosa, which was a lot rawer, a lot more intense, and it was produced by Steve Albini. Uh, They go on to make Doolittle, which is more polished, but didn't lose any of the sort of mania behind the Pixies sound. But that, of course, didn't stop Steve Albini from being an asshole about Doolittle. He, he would go on in interviews as he does with every you know band that he's worked with to say, like, I, I forget the Steve Albiniism that he used, but basically saying like that album's a complete sellout. But if it is a sellout album, what a what a weird and strange and wonderful and beautiful sellout album it is. Debaser is the first song on the album. It begins with Kim Deal's, you know, signature 16th note bass hits. charming sort of genesis story so the pixies are from boston the lead singer and songwriter black francis met the guitarist joey santiago at umass zoomass amherst zoomass um, baby and they were playing they were playing in boston (laughs) (laughs) they were playing in boston and they needed a bassist so they put a newspaper ad out they said we're looking for a bassist who likes peter paul and mary and husker do (laughs) <laughs> and Kim Deal was the only person who answered. But I kind of like that. I find that to be a charming detail. Um, so Debaser is a song about the 1929 film Un Chien Andalou, which is by the Spanish artists and filmmakers Luis Buñuel and Salvador Dali. Evan, it's like the most important surrealist movie ever made, would you say? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, every, everyone, like the eyeball being yeah. cut in half is just like a they, piece of like iconography. If it's iconography and like possibly second to Dolly's The Persistence of Memory with mm-hmm. the melted clocks, it's maybe the second just most important mm-hmm. surrealist art piece. It's a 20 minute long film. It's free association. The legend goes, it's, it's maybe apocryphal, but the legend goes that at the premiere of the film, people were puking and passing out and rioting and stuff like that. Can, can, um, I, just, can I just say real quickly that yeah. when I hear stories like that, 
as someone who's worked in a lot of movie theaters, I've yeah. seen that kind of stuff happen at shocking where, movies. Where people so go I, crazy. Yeah. So the, the idea like that, and a lot of shocking things happen in movies, in every movie these days. So I totally believe, that's why I believe the Exorcist ones as well. Yeah. Like oh yeah. In like 1929, for people to see that, I'm sure would drive them crazy. So I, I totally believe it. Yeah. yeah. So Ethan, do you know the famous thing that happens in this movie? People ride not it, even people, a little bit. Oh, people ride it at ballet. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. <laughs> when like, Shostako- yeah, exactly. Or when Shostakovich like puts some weird note in his opera, people ride it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're right. People are dumbasses. Of course they would riot at anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, the famous image in this film is they take a woman's eye and they take a shaving razor and they take Ew. it across and then they they cut to footage of a cloud moving across the moon and then they slice into an eyeball, which ended up being a dead sheep's eyeball. So mm. I actually show this film to my class. So it gets them stoked out. But um, <laughs> yeah! I mean, this, <laughs> this is like, crazy. this is like film is like a 30 or 40 year old art form montage and like association between images is still pretty young and what Boonwell and Dali are doing is they're trying to create free association between images but in a really shocking way like slicing into an eyeball so the song the lyrics are got me a movie I want you to know slicing up eyeballs I want you to know Don't know about you, but I am un chien Andalusia. And then the chorus is, I want to grow up to be a debaser. And what it's about is Black Francis saw the film, Un Chien Andalou, and he was like, this is so awesome. I want to make <laughs> debased art. I want to make art that upsets people and upends social norms and makes people sick. That's what the song's about. And, it, and it's super exciting and, and, and fun. And then what's so interesting, though, about the demo, the chorus isn't that developed, but I think it's kind of interesting. He's kind of free associating, but he doesn't say he wants to be a debaser in the chorus. And he also doesn't say, got me a movie slicing up eyeballs. And he does not say, I want to be Unshen Andalusia. He says, uh, I want you to shake Apollonia. Apollonia is the name of the character, the love interest from the Prince movie, Purple Rain. So I think very clearly what this demo is, is they laid down the instrumentation for it. And Black Francis was just sort of doing a Boonwell Dolly surrealist thing. He was free associating and he was putting the words down. And you actually see this in the, the Beatles documentary that came out a few months ago. The Beatles have the same technique where they have the the chords and the melody, but they don't know what the words are going to be. So they just sort of hum or do half words or put in nonsense and just see what words sound right. Black Francis saw this movie from 1929 and it made him so amped up that he made a song about it he was like inspired and kind of the the lyrics to it fell into place so i just find that to be a a super cool thing and i i think it's so appropriate for the movie 
that he ended up singing about because he's he free associated his way to it by way of a character from a Prince movie, you know? So that's my choice. Mm-hmm. I really like your, your characterization that he's like so amped by this movie. So I just imagine it was like vibrating out of his seat. It's like, oh, just like raging I gotta, around. I gotta write a song about it. Yeah, and just like going. I mean, literally in the way that you hear him, he does this like manic laugh right like slice in the bible you know like he's just completely out of his mind stoked you know my choice is from the wonderful band spoon they're a two-timer as well they are a two-timer. It's like Evan. Um, man, Spoon, I think, is a terrible name now that I'm saying it out loud. And I really like, focusing I on like it. that great, name. When, when, it, when I hear that word, I think of the band. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. No. I think of like, I'm like Spoon. Oh, yes. I think it's a great name. It, it's evocative and it's the, the, the letters are good. The word sounds good. It's that goofy. It's too goofy to me. It's work. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I chose the song, Was It You? It is off of their album, Gimme Fiction, which hilariously was entitled gimme fiction because Britt daniel just decided he wanted to use the word gimme in the title of the album <laughs> he was just like i think this word should be in my album title i guess i'll <laughs> fill out the rest later i mean That's, hey it worked it's good hey, good album title the artistic process moves in mysterious ways yeah so this actually became a really big album for Spoon because a song I turned my camera on was mm-hmm. on this album. It was released as a single and it became one of their biggest hits. But this album is yet again another one of like Brit Daniel just being a mastermind in the studio kind of things. I had never known that these demos existed, but there was a deluxe reissue of this album on its 10th anniversary, and this demo was part of that deluxe reissue. This is not the hit from the album, but the original song from the album itself is really good. Again, it's just kind of like studio magic from Britt Daniel. And when I listen to this demo, man, I've never heard a demo that sounds maybe not more polished, but more radio friendly then yeah the actual song that went on the I like album the drums of the demo yeah that was that was the exactly what i thought the first time i heard it i was like whoa where did this drum tone come yeah. from it sounds amazing We were talking about this earlier, but demos typically are like a scratch version, right? I'm just putting down an idea. The lyrics might change. This might change. This is like the final version. And then they went back and totally tweaked it to sound way more low key. Very often in recording music, people will say like, okay, what do you want the drums to sound like? What's a song? What's a, you know, an album? What's an artist? Mm-hmm. For me, I'm going to go to this song and be like, this I want song. the drums to sound like that it's so funny that you say like i've never heard a demo where the demo sounds more polished than the album version and it's like that's the way brit daniel's mind works that's the stereotype about brit daniel is that he is a meticulous studio mastermind and so of course even the most tossed off thing he's gonna make is like so expertly controlled you know it's fascinating to see that 
process? From like a songwriting perspective, I do think, and as a writing perspective as a whole, I am an advocate for the edit. Always edit. And don't be afraid to edit. Things can change. So whenever I do encounter like demos or other recordings that do seem more like intricate or something, to me, I'm like, to them, it sounded better. They saw the pieces and they took out what they thought they needed to take out. It's like an edited version of this more like complete song, which sometimes, like you said, I like this version. This version of the song is, is cool. It's got a different vibe than the yeah, album. Yeah. One. It's like, oh, they, they should have just probably stuck with this. Who wins the best demo round? I mean, Man. I'm just going to say me. I mean, Smith you rocks. can't vote against a dead guy. Exactly. <laughs> I got to go with Elliot Smith. I mean, uh, you can't vote against Elliot Smith. No, you can't vote against Elliot Smith. You know, dead Yay. or not. Dead or not. <laughs> RIP, Elliot. Our third category is best alternate mix. Now I'm going to make fun of you. Here we go. <laughs> I Let have me a just... great reason for choosing okay. this song. I know, I was, but I was confused too. I was like, <laughs> Ethan, Ethan does these kind of Hail Mary choices. No, it's not a Hail Mary. No, okay. no, no. Hail Marys are not calculated, right? It's the end of the game. You're desperate <laughs> and you just huck one to the end zone. No, no, no. This is this more is... of a trick play if we're going to use this a sports this metaphor. Is a trick play. But let me just say, Ethan originally chose a Joy Division song for this category. And he was like, he texted me, he was like, is Joy Division too lame? Is it like too obvious? I was like, no, everyone likes Joy Division. And then he just turned around and chose Imagine Dragons. <laughs> hey, man. Okay, <laughs> so let's let's talk about it. Let's talk okay. about this. I'm not going to give my opinion on the song yet. Okay. Let's talk about this song. Imagine <laughs> Dragons. Of course they are from Las Vegas. Uh, there you they go. have to be to make music like this. <laughs> they are probably one of the biggest bands in the world question mark like they're they're enormously popular it makes me think of like uh, avatar of like it's like yeah. they're popular in the way that avatar is popular like where who's a yes. fan who's a fan but if there are clearly fans yeah like but, but you don't know any personally but like does that right. mean that you know it's like a weird <laughs> so they've sold 75 million records they were the most streamed artist on spotify in 2018 four of their songs surpassed one billion streams on spotify Jesus. They have many songs that you have heard in the waiting room of a dentist or mm. in a, a um, CrossFit gym, a CrossFit gym, any of those kinds of places. And they have this song. And this was kind of like their biggest hit off of their debut album in 2012. The song, the original song is terrible. Here's the trick mm -hmm. play. It has pretty much, to me, no redeeming qualities. It is very much of the mid-2010s genre of pop music, which is to say the verses are very quiet. The chorus is unbelievably loud. With a kind of dubstep drop when it gets into yes. the... Yes, the song Radioactive has, to me, no redeeming qualities. I chose the alternate Knicks, which featured Kendrick Lamar. The reason I chose this as my favorite alternate mix is because 
it is by far the most improved song by being remixed. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. It is inarguably so much better because it goes from basically unlistenable in my estimation to like, I will tolerate it to listen <laughs> okay. to the like approximately <laughs> okay. one okay. minute of Kendrick Lamar doing his thing at like a maximum level. Since I was bending Lego black Now you tell the world about me Try snitch Tater tots On my shotgun I gotta pop with nectar stars and what's really interesting about this remix is when Imagine Dragons got two Grammy Award nominations for this song, Radioactive, they were scheduled to perform. And then what they did is during the broadcast, Kendrick Lamar came on stage and I remember performed with weirdly. them. Yeah. And it was like a really like, oh, that's weird that Kendrick Lamar is performing. <laughs> but if you saw the actual performance of it, it was amazing. And it was so well received mm-hmm. that then they put this out as like an official remix and it's just, it's like such a pastiche of Kendrick Lamar and like mm-hmm. what he does. It's, but it's so good. And he just does yeah. such a good job of it. And it, I think it also goes to show like how much of a consummate professional he is that he would hop on this absolute trash <laughs> song and just tear it up. I remember watching it and being like, oh, cool. Like, you right. know what I mean? Like, it's so, yeah. yeah. It's, he, he seems to elevate anything that he, does like anything he's associated with it's like hey that's kendrick lamar that's pretty cool i agree it's unlistenable um and yeah the kendrick part is good so you're all allowed trick play concluded resulted (laughs) in a touchdown my choice is yet another band i think this is just the episode where we kind of clear house on the canonical artists that we need to like put in our show's pantheon and one that i know ethan does not like has tried to like cannot like is bell and well, smash i like imagine and... dragons so i don't know exactly uh evan do you do you still dig bell and sebastian or are they kind of off your bell and sebastian again one of those bands where they had their like more chewy acoustic semi-electric sound early on and the second yeah. they became a little bit more Beatles step into my office baby yada yada yeah, yada yeah, I was yeah. like I was like you're losing it for me I'm yeah I'm, I'm gone but but I still listen to if you're feeling sinister because I think that is it's just perfect a great album you know it doesn't perfect really, album like yeah. I wouldn't call myself a Bell and Sebastian fan but I would call mm-hmm. myself a if you're feeling sinister fan I agree. Even during the height of my fandom as a teenager, I didn't get much past Boy with the Arab Strap. Like the later stuff didn't didn't do it for me as much. I think like the first two albums, Tiger Milk, which my choice is sort of from, and if you're feeling sinister, it's where it's at with Bell and Sebastian. And aren't there like 12 people in that band? It's like the polyphonic spree. It's a cult. And yeah. that's why I was so confused. I would, I would see photos of them and stuff. There'd be so many of them. And then I would listen to If You're Feeling Sinister. And I'm like, there's like four instruments on this. I don't understand yeah. what's happening. Bell and Sebastian is kind of like The Fall or like one of those bands where it's okay, one yeah, it's yeah. one person. And like, I mean, Stuart Murdoch would disagree because he is throughout Bell and Sebastian's tenure, like tried to make it the Democratic group but right. everyone but knows works. jerry garcia said that didn't work it doesn't right. work you know? no yeah everyone knows that the the success of bell and sebastian is due to Stuart murdoch so right who's Stuart murdoch he's uh, a weird twee guy i think in another life or you know if he, he failed at music he would have been a novelist and because all of his songs are really wry sort of sardonic gently amused about human nature these character sketches and these these little moments that really describe the human condition in this really gentle way. And the common criticism about Bell and Sebastian is that they're twee 
they're like kind of the original twee band in that they're wimpy in that they don't really talk about real things. It's just kind of like cozy, rainy day music. But Stuart Murdoch from the beginning has always had teeth, I think, in the way that he talks about his subjects. You know, he doesn't pull punches in terms of depicting kind of fraught moments between people and, you know, cynicism about certain aspects of humanity. It's very literary, like it's very rich. It's not just this rosy view of people. Bell and Sebastian are from Glasgow, Scotland. Um, What's that? Scotland. Scotland. I must ask you a question, but I'm shaving it for later. But the origin of Bell and Sebastian is is really interesting. Stuart Murdoch, he had ambitions to be a musician. He actually, in 1994, came down with chronic fatigue syndrome. And so he was confined to a bed and he wrote um, all the songs that became Bell and Sebastian's first album, Tiger Milk. But what's very interesting is that as with most British and European countries, the governments of those countries invest in the arts. Can you imagine such a thing in the United States? Uh, no, only only imagine no. dragons making uh, uh, capital <laughs> records, millions of dollars. Scotland had a welfare program for struggling musicians who had ambitions to be professional and needed a little boost. Can you imagine? We did. We wouldn't get Bell and Sebastian if Stuart Murdoch was from the United States because he was a disabled person, not pulling in much money, and he had these ambitions to make music, but the Scottish government helped him. There were only a thousand copies released of Tiger Milk, and it's sort of its legend sort of preceded it. You know, copies of Tiger Milk were passed around, and you know, back then you couldn't just hear an album; you would hear about it and kind of hear other people describe it. And so the legend of this album grew so that by the time in 96, the follow-up, If You're Feeling Sinister, which is widely considered their masterpiece, gets released. The first song on Tiger Milk is The State I Am In. It's a great song. The album version, the first thing that people ever, you know, the shot heard around the world, the first balance of action people ever heard was The State I Am In. I don't like it as much as the alternate mix, which was released as a single. The album version to me is too, I don't like how he sings it as much. The one that I chose from the single, the alternate mix is much more power pop. It's just guitar, bass, drums. It's a little smithsy. It's a little kind of like big star. I've always preferred it. Give myself to sin again, myself to providence, and I and there and back again, the state that I am in. The song itself, the details in the lyrics. This guy is a storyteller and there's not a super cohesive narrative to it at this weird, turbulent time in this narrator's life. Again, this band is not twee like these are some really dramatic moments i got married in a rush to save a kid from being deported now she's in love Stuart murdoch's stories they're populated by these young people trying to figure out their identities maybe they're queer maybe they're not maybe they just don't fit into these sort of like working class scotland gender roles he was gay took the heat off me for a while 
He stood up with a sailor friend, made it known upon my sister's wedding day. The Zen garden, just simplicity, the the details that it's like, what took the heat off of the narrator? What was it about the narrator that his parents like hated or maybe like thought he was gay or thought he wasn't masculine in this right way or wasn't doing something right? And then his brother is the one that makes this big gesture. So I could talk about Bell and Sebastian endlessly. I think their music is incredibly rich and, you know, all of it's been said before. And I think that as a storyteller, Stuart Murdoch is unparalleled. And I think he's also underrated because he writes about the human condition in a really interesting way. It's not just sunshine and roses. That's my, my choice. Uh, Evan, take us home with your banger. Oh, wow. Okay. We so, also have never talked about this artist. See, I was, I was going to ask, have you talked about Graham Parsons at all? Okay. So no. I'll keep that. I'll keep that in mind. So, okay. I found out about Graham Parsons on YouTube. I literally just searched good country music <laughs> that is 100 the the truth i don't know what it was came up with a bunch of like albums or whatever i don't know what it was but i chose return of the grievous angel by graham mm-hmm. parsons it just like immediately spoke to me you know i was looking for country music at the time that spoke to me on a level higher than hank williams or whatever or like those old country 50s 60s country and so graham parsons kind of fell into my lap and i found that album and i really fell in love with it so he died he's is he a member of the 27 club he died when he was 27 he was 26 he didn't make he didn't make it so so graham parsons basically he was this the son of this citrus farmer i think like tangerine farmer in uh georgia i don't have all of the facts totally correct but he was he was the son of like an illustrious farmer. And so he was like this shaggy fuck up who wanted to be a rock star. You know what I mean? Like he, he wasn't going to be just like, you know, like his dad. And so he was a gifted musician. He would never, he would never say he discovered Emmylou Harris, but he met Emmylou Harris, brought her to uh, his shows and brought her to the recording studio. And some of the first popular, sort of pub- you know, released sort of pub- recordings of Emmylou Harris are on Graham Parsons recordings. He was in the birds for a bit after the birds had been established. There is a- another term that he hated was it's like American cosmic music was the name of this genre that like maybe the Grateful Dead or it's kind of like a, it's country rock is really what it is. It's country right. rock music. That's all it is. And people called it like American cosmic music, man. And like, he, <laughs> and like he hated that term. Like he talks about like, he didn't, I, like, I didn't come up with that term. Nothing. I play, you know, country music, but he plays like country rock music. And that's what it basically is. And so he brought that sound to the birds and they have a very popular album that I feel like I, I must've found that album when it was having some kind of resurgence. Cause at one point, I knew nobody who knew that album. And the next day, everybody knew the album Sweetheart <laughs> of the Rodeo by the mm-hmm. Birds. It was just mm-hmm. like an all of a sudden thing. So I think I found it at the same time as everybody else. In South Carolina There are many tall pines. I remember I will say I I vastly prefer the Graham Parsons era of the birds to the earlier like turn turn turn. Oh yeah, like, all that shit is like yeah, like rejects like sixties like. Pop. It's really influential, but I like the country birds stuff more. Same, you know? same. So yeah, so he was in the birds. He became most popular when he went solo, which he released his solo album GP, which is really a great album. It has like a few you know songs he wrote. So then he died, and he released posthumously Return of the Grievous Angel. Now. For people who don't know about the way Graham Parsons died, it's a very fascinating Crazy. story yeah. that I'll 
that it's pretty like it's the stuff like legend there was a movie about it starring oh. johnny knoxville and and michael shannon it's called grand theft parsons um <laughs> and so basically so the story is that he was an addict he had an overdose and he had spoken with his manager like a few weeks before or something and said, like, when I die, I want my ashes spread across Joshua Tree. And so he died. And when his body was being transported to the plane to go back to his family, his manager, Phil Kaufman, concocted the story and convinced them that he was hired by the Parsons family to drive his body to them and not take the plane or whatever. So Phil Kaufman, I forget, he was with like his accomplice. They drive out to the middle of Joshua Tree and they're like wasted. They clearly haven't like thought anything through and they just light his coffin on fire and he just starts burning and are so drunk that it's not working out. They think it's going to work. And they Bring just a makeshift leave. cremation. Yeah. And they, yeah. And, and, but they just leave. They just are like, oh shit. And they just leave. And people around, you know, call the police. And yeah, they find Graham Parsons like charred body. You know, he's, he's not reduced to ashes. Just like this yeah. burn his body. So um, disrespectful. I know. It's crazy. Yeah. It's absolutely crazy. And Phil Kaufman, he's still out there defending himself about it. But so that brings us to the actual song. That's who Graham Parsons was, uh, more or less. He was just very influential. He he didn't create country rock, but he certainly popularized country yeah. rock music. And so when he was in the birds, he wrote a song with this guy, Bob Buchanan, who wasn't in the birds, I don't think, but he was in the International Submarine Band with Graham Parsons. He was like his writing partner. And they wrote a song together called Hickory Wind. It's a beautifully written song. And if that was the only version that existed, it'd be the classic that it still is today. So on Return of the Grievous Angel, there's this weird double track. It's a single track that has two songs on it. It's very bizarre. The first song is called Cash on the Barrelhead, which is a cover. It's like a country standard, the Leuven Brothers. They did the original. The second song on this sort of half track is Hickory Wind. And they are apparently, quote unquote, live versions of the song, which I just never mm -hmm. believed from the second no, I heard that song. No, yeah. not even remotely is it possible that those like, are They're not even like versions. trying to make right? it seem. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's what so, so I'm like, I'm like, they're not even trying. Mm -hmm. So that's maybe like the point. It's so weird because they it's just so obviously fake. And I knew it was fake, but I wouldn't admit it anywhere. And they released like a posthumous collection of every single recording that he did for Reprise Records, which was like his solo career stuff. And they released like, you know, a big collection of like every little tidbit that he possibly recorded there. So for years, I was like, I wish there was just like a non-live version of this Hickory Wind. It is just ruined by this like canned applause and like glasses yeah. breaking in the background. And somebody like, and he's like, he's like, this is song time from label or like an old yeah. song from a long time back. It's just, Hey like, Jerry, get me another bar rag. <laughs> yeah. It's just like so corny. And I, you could always tell the song underneath it was so good. And so it's literally maybe like the last track on this like collection or the second to last track, which is this, clean version, so non-faked version of Hickory Wind with Emmylou Harris. But now when I'm lonesome I always pretend that To me, it's the perfect version of the song. And it's just like a beautiful song that clearly he's sings it with a lot of heart the lyrics have a lot of heart it's just like a truly beautiful song that i never ever get sick of 
to die at 26 and to enter the birds, which is already this like institution mm-hmm. of pop music and to change what they do, like to completely exactly. change their sound. Is he brought it. He was incredible. Like, music. Yeah, he's like, yeah. I make country music. And we're going to make, not only am I going to write as country music, but you guys are going to start writing country music as well. Yeah. And they kept playing country music after he left. So yeah. they clearly liked it and were getting paid to do it. When Graham Parsons left, they didn't change their thing. They just, and you know, I think their best album is Ballad of Easy Rider, which came out after Graham Parsons had already left the band. Yeah, he was a legend. And yeah, this version is clearly the superior one. When you got Emmy Lou, you know, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? It's, right. it's the, the supreme. You're, you're going to cover her up in fake clapping, like no. beer glasses. Hell no. Or whatever. Hell no. So annoying. I hated yeah. it. All right. That's Evan's choice for best alternate Man, mix. What a good choice, too. What a good choice. Ethan, who are you going to give it to? Imagine uh, I, Dragons? Uh, well, absolutely. <laughs> no, I mean, I really, really like the song that Evan chose. I'd never heard it. And I think also the the difference between mm-hmm. songs, I mean. Furiating. So uh, I could tip it for you to win the episode, but I might just give it to Imagine Dragons. Um, <laughs> just for fun. I like it. I mean, I like that answer because we know that, of course, <laughs> I'm going to come in and say, Imagine Dragons, you won. No. You won uh, the whole episode. <laughs> so, no. I'm no, going uh, to myself, obviously. Evan, Evan gets it. Evan yeah. gets it with Graham. Graham Parsons gets it. And Evan wins the episode. Yeah, this goes out to Graham Parsons for sure. This goes out to Graham and Elliot. Yeah, and Elliot. Yeah, it's true. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Graham. Well, that was Rarities. Thanks for for hanging out with us. Super fun theme idea. Thanks for coming up with it, Evan. It was um, clearly it was so I could talk about like mostly this song. Like this is a song that I just like. Dude, why does this podcast exist? It's just for us to exactly have (laughs) some kind of loose excuse to nerd out about shit. Yeah. Tell us real briefly, like, what are you working on with your comics, if, if our listeners remember? And then uh, real quick, where can they find you? Where can they, they support you? Yeah, yeah. I make comics. I make, you know, like small press comics, zines, that kind of stuff. I am working on the third issue of my series, Rodeo. Which, it's going to be a graphic novel eventually. No, it's like a sort of long form literary thing. But I work on very slowly. In the meantime, I've been I've started doing like a daily comic strip on my Patreon. It's only $3 a month. And I'm going to be posting pages on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. You can subscribe if you want. Or if you just want to look at stuff for free, which that's what I do for most everything anyway, uh, you can go to Instagram, which is my name is at Evan underscore salad bar. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Evan's shit is legit. Uh, Very, very good comic artist. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So my father, Stu Haken, he passed away on May 26th uh, this year. His 70th birthday would have been June 8th, a few days ago. My dad listened to every single episode of this show. And Ethan, as we know, some episodes are better than others. <laughs> but he listened and to all he of them. He suffered through all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and he would listen and he, uh, you know, I live in Chicago. He was in Tucson and he would listen in order to check in with me. He'd text me and say, I like this aspect of the show or that aspect of the show. Or during the Evan episode, he was like, Evan sounds great. You know, <laughs> um, you know, this is, this is for my dad, you know, this, this goes out to my dad. So, you know, rest in peace, dad. And love you. Love you a lot. Rest in peace. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I'll just say one last thing rarities is the name of the theme but ethan evan you're both rarities 
You're a rarity, bud. Wow. Hey, that's, bud. That's very I'm, sweet. I'm arching my eyebrow for people who can't see. <laughs> All right. Thanks, folks. Thank you.